Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Just before you listen to today's episode, this is a quick message to remind you that if you like what you hear, you can help support History Hack, which is run entirely by volunteers using our Patreon account. There are links on all of our episodes. Or if a subscription is not your thing, you can also now drop us a line on Kofi, which is just the equivalent of buying us a drink. So if you hear an episode, you like it and you want to chip in just once, then you can do that too. Thank you. Hello and welcome to another instalment of History Hack. You've got Zach and Alex with you today. Um, Boss, I think we're going to kind of just be a little bit ignorant over the course of this one, aren't we? This is one of those things where you said, look, I, I want some of this. And I kind of went away and collectively we, we found someone and neither of us really know much about it. No, but this is a running theme because this is a returning guest and I'm always completely ignorant when he turns up because he's effectively become our China and Far East correspondent because he's just better than anyone we know on this and his episodes are fantastic. So every time we want something from here, uh, we come and grovel at the feet of Dr. Jonathan Clements, who's a presenter of Root Awakening, a TV series on National Geographic investigating icons of Chinese history and culture. He's written so many books, it makes my head hurt, including A Brief History of Kublai Khan, which is out in paperback and ebook, and finally out as an audiobook in October. Uh, so we're going to talk about that. He's been on History Hack before, obviously. We've done Chinese food, we've done Confucius, and we did Empress Wu as well, if you remember. So yeah, he is back to talk about one of the fattest people ever to sit on the throne of China. Was he, as numerous textbooks claim at schools, a noble and great warrior, or was he China's Donald Trump? We're going to find out today, aren't we, Jonathan? How are you? I'm a happy pixie. Lovely to be back. How is sunny Finland? Probably not sunny at this point. Uh, it is very sunny, and uh, I have indeed been in the studio uh, all week recording the audiobook um, of Kublai Khan. Um, which is which is why we've kind of ramped this because you, you, there's a number of things you wanted to talk to me about on History Hack, uh, but Kublai Khan we're kind of doing because after ten bloody years, the publishers have finally decided that they it needs to be an audiobook version as well. So I've been in the studio trying to do names in you know Chinese, Japanese, Mongol, Tibetan, uh, Arabic, and Turkish, which sometimes in the same sentence, and kind of wishing that I'd thought about that before I wrote it down. Almost wishing you went for the Tudors instead. Tudors, nice to <laughs> pronounce, but less fun for me, I'm afraid. It's China all the way for me. Yeah, bugger the Tudors. We've had enough of them. So he is the fourth son of Genghis Khan's youngest son. Um, and these guys, I know you use the phrase smearing DNA, which is wonderful. Uh, they've got a lot of kids. So why him? 
Why, why him? Why him becoming the ruler of everything? Yeah, um, and how, what is the competition? Just how many kids does this guy have? Well, there's a huge amount of competition, particularly because the way that nomad cultures work is very different from agrarian cultures. So, in, in an agrarian culture, you tend to develop primogeniture, and so the eldest son takes over, and the youngest sons are just kind of there, and you hope they become priests or something, or, or you know, merchants or whatever, and don't really get involved in the land. In a nomad culture. Uh, property passes um, through brothers, and so does rulership passes through brothers. So, so when when Genghis Khan died, there was a big argument among his uh, among his, his brothers, and then among his children about who should take over. And it's expected the brothers will fight each other. I mean, this is a recurring thing. You get it turning up in all the Chinese nomad dynasties. You get it turning up in the Ottoman Empire. This idea that when the the, the part of familias dies, the brothers are expected to turn on each other. And 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 when uh, and when uh, Genghis Khan, by the way, is a title. It just means the Great Khan. His his name was actually Temujin. Um, and when Temujin died, uh, he tried to sort of suggest that maybe people should be a bit. I mean, ironically, coming from him, he suggested maybe people should be a bit more civilized. And instead of like knifing <laughs> each other over his grave, they should choose the best. It's kind of very kind of Alexander the Great kind of thing. You know, leave my empire to the best. The idea of him saying, look, everyone just needs to chill. Yeah, everyone like, needs to chill, said yeah. Genghis Khan. Genghis um, Khan said. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I think he, he, he's, he understood that he, he had taken the Mongols from being a bunch of nomad scrabbling, I mean, when he, when he was young, literally scrabbling the dirt, literally digging up roots to survive, into being this elite ruling over a massive um, uh, empire that was still expanding with, with all kinds of slave races under them. And so I think he knew that there'd been a change and he actually warned, he kind of made these kind of prophecies before he died saying, don't go soft. You know, our grandchildren, our great grandchildren, they're going to have, you know, soft silks and they're going to have beautiful wives and they're going to forget about where they came from. And I remember thinking at the time, that's not a nice thing to say to Mrs. Genghis, who presumably, you know, might like to be thought of as a beautiful wife herself. But yeah. nevertheless, <laughs> um, he wanted uh, his, his, his offspring to, to try and be a bit more sensible about it, to convene a council and to elect a successor. But he threw in a real hand grenade on his way out the door, as it were, by saying, you know, I want you to choose the right kind of person to run things after I'm gone. Mm. You know, and it should be someone of my blood. But if they turn out to be worthless, then get rid of them. And it's the definition of the term worthless that dogs the Mongols for the next 50 years. Because mm. they're all sitting there having this conference going, well, he said, you know, nobody of my blood, uh, someone of my blood. So it's going to be one of his sons. But, you know, what do we mean by worthless? And, and the, the Mongols split almost immediately into a conservative faction and a reformist faction. And there's a conservative faction going, to be a good Mongol, you've got to rape and pillage. You've got to ride as far as you can, <laughs> nick stuff, steal from people, you know, be in charge, Scorched get drunk, earth. quaff, quaff like like Oliver Reed on a on a good night out, and, yeah. and and never stop. And then you've got the the other faction going. Well, you know, we've discovered cities and stuff, and we kind of like them, and yeah. we'd like to maybe hang around in that. I mean, do we have to be you know wandering around on horseback all the time? Do we have to do all these things necessarily to do all the raping and the pillaging now that we've got stuff? Well, I, I think that when you, with the Mongols, you're dealing with an elite. You're dealing with an oppressive elite. And like all oppressive elites, they want to hang on with both hands to what they've got. And, uh, but in the course of the, uh, of the 13th century, they've realized that they don't need to kill people. 
to get what they want. Um, Temujin literally thought there were too many people in the world, and he wanted to just kill all the spare people off and return the world to, to pasture for cattle to graze on. His children <laughs> had been convinced, and I'm not making this up either. Yeah. His children had been convinced over the course of their conquest of northern China that a really good thief doesn't kill someone. They mug them, and they let them get away, and then they come back and mug them again. <laughs> And, and, and they'd realize that this is how civilization worked. And that if you had farmers who were paying tax, you could keep on creaming this money off and you didn't have to work so hard for it. So yeah. you can already see there's this split. And what happened, uh, and I, I realize this is a very, very long answer, but it's a, it's a complicated question because the other thing with the Mongols is, is that there was this idea that the, the eldest son would ride the furthest and the next eldest son would ride you know, quite, quite far. And they'd all go searching for new lands and new conquests and new things. So the youngest was the one who was left back at the hearth. Mm. And so Tolui, who was um, Kublai's dad, he was the youngest son of Temujin. And, uh, and Kublai was his fourth son. So he was kind of regarded as the baby. And he was left behind. And the trouble is, is that once you have this centralized authority, once you're deciding we're not, it's not all about wandering the steps anymore, it's about having a centralized authority and one ruler we all obey, the center becomes Mongolia. And Mongolia is the place right at the back which everyone's forgotten about, where they all came from originally. And that's where Kublai is. And so what you get um, in the arguments over who succeeds him is, is firstly, you have some of Temujin's elder sons, you know, um, uh, Guyuk, for example, and Munk. Uh, they, they rule for a while as Khan, but eventually it devolves to Tolui and Tolui's dead. So they end up arguing between two candidates, Kublai and Arik Burke, his brother. Um, and in fact, what, what happened is that although we think of Kublai as, as the great Khan, he spent years and years in this massive civil war with his brother because Arik Burkett was the conservative faction. He was the one the conservatives backed. He was a man's Mongol. He was a proper Mongol. And Kublai, they always thought he was suspicious. They thought he'd gone soft. And, and, and in fact, he was accused, I think quite rightly, of going native among the Chinese. And so you have this tension between the Mongols. And th um, basically, in, in the terms of Kublai's reign, um, I think in you know he, he was um, uh, he died in 1294, so he's he's basically in charge for uh, in charge of China for 30 years. He had three years without a civil war with his own family. <laughs> the rest of that time, he was in a war somewhere in Asia with representatives of that conservative faction, Arik Bouquet originally, and then after Arik Bouquet's death, uh, he, uh, a guy called Kaidu. Um, and, and so, you know, did, although Kublai Khan is, is remembered as, as this great emperor of China and this man who unified all of Asia, he spent most of his time dealing with revolts and revolutions all over the place. And, and many members of his family, in fact, never accepted him. So all of this war, is this because he's not a particularly gifted military commander or he's not a very good politician or that he's just got too many balls that he needs to juggle? Um, well, I, I think I think too many balls is is the simple answer, um, because you know you, you're taking a, a group of people who who like hunting and shooting. Well, not shooting. I mean, shooting arrows. They, they they like you know killing animals and killing other people and uh, you know living a life um, a, a pastoral life on the steppes, which eventually turned into war. They find themselves inheriting this huge realm. Uh, with all of these new factors that they've never had to deal with before. There's no, there's no mechanism in place for collecting tax, 
for example. For uh, um, there's no there's no law that the Mongols have a law called the Yasa, um, but they haven't bothered to write it down for anyone because no one because they just knew it. And now the Chinese is, uh, and, they're, and now they're telling the Chinese, "Oh, you're breaking the law." And the Chinese are like, "What law? You didn't tell us what the law was." So there's all these problems going on. Um, and, and so, yes, uh, Kublai had to deal with them. And in many cases, he dealt with them very, very well. I mean, I sound negative about him, uh, but one of the problems with Chinese history is it always ends in failure. Every dynasty eventually fails. And so we have to kind of concentrate sometimes on, on those things that were successes. And one of the successes was that he did indeed unite China for the first time in centuries um, because it had been split uh, for, for many years. Um, but also, uh, yes, it is worth, as you, as you uh, imply, mentioning that he wasn't that great on the whole war front. Um, as the son of a Mongol leader, he was expected to be a, a great warrior. In fact, uh, there's very little evidence in the historical record to suggest that he did anything particularly clever in that regard. He had some very good generals under him, and they achieved some very great things. Um, as a young man un under, under his brother, uh, under his um, uncle, he was tasked with invading uh, a state in South China, um, and he rushed in, uh, took a surrender from you know the first person who offered one, and then went home saying, "Yep, done." Um, and in fact, uh, that it took years. The mop-up operation in that state took years, and it was all his generals' problems. And similarly, later in life, he rode into the desert in a war with Arig Boker, realized he didn't have enough supplies, turned tail, and rode out of the desert again. Uh, which was fine if you had a horse, but for the foot soldiers who were with him, they were basically abandoned to die in the desert. So in, in military terms, he didn't achieve a whole lot. Um, but of course, in military terms, he also presided over the war machine, which did indeed conquer all of China. Um, the Mongols had taken over the north of China. They, they, they'd conquered um, uh, everywhere north of the Yangtze. Um, but south of the Yangtze uh, had never really fallen to Mongols before. And it was, was under Kublai's uh, reign um, and under Kublai's uh, stewardship, that Mongol armies did eventually take the south of China. But in a very modern parallel, much as the Taliban can suddenly sweep over Afghanistan overnight, it's worth bearing in mind that many of the soldiers, many of the so-called Mongol soldiers who took over south China were actually Chinese. They were turncoats. They were the, the, the Mongols were very, very few Mongols. Um, and so although they were the, the top level, the... Uh, the actual rank and file were often people from conquered territories. They'd conquer a territory, and the first thing they'd do is get the people from that territory to invade the next one along. So when China fell, it did to, it did to an army that was largely comprising Chinese soldiers. So if he's rubbish at military staff, I'm just laughing because I know what's went through Zach's head. As soon as you said about leaving all your men in the desert and die, he wanted to go, just like Napoleon! Uh, Zach. <laughs> Is a Napoleonic historian and doesn't like him. But mm. is that what you were thinking? Just just a little bit. You know, <laughs> that kind of air of the last days of the Russia retreat. You know, oh, I fucked this up and I'm going to run away. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> so he's not good at military, but we remember him for a reason, don't we? What is he good at? Why is he different to the others? Well, what made him different was that he did, uh, 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 he did go native. And he embraced that very, very, very much. Um, he, uh, like, like many nomad rulers before him, he was bewitched by China um, and he uh, didn't want to give up any of the Chinese things that he kind of grew up with. Because, you know, he, uh, he, his mother was um, 
uh, was an historian Christian, uh, but he grew up in a very Sinified environment with, kind of Sinified, with Chinese luxuries. And uh, he um, knew that he was the ruler of the Mongols, but he deliberately embraced the idea that to rule China properly, he also needed to be the emperor of the Chinese. And so he became the first Mongol emperor of China. Um, and he presided over the Yuan dynasty, uh, which um, he proclaimed before the Chinese had actually been defeated. It's a little bit off, but in fact, there was still a guy calling himself the emperor of China in, in Hangzhou, ruling the Southern Song dynasty, when Kublai said, oh, my new dynasty's begun, everybody. Um, <laughs> Uh, but but within a few years, uh, that had stopped being fake news and it was actually true. And he presided over uh, a combined realm of China and Mongolia. And the further west you went, the less powerful his authority was. All of the other kind of Mongol princelings had sworn loyalty, loyalty to him. But rather wisely, he didn't put that loyalty to the direct test a whole lot. Um, and kind of left them to it. But, you know, within China, he was very happy um, within China, and he's remembered for uniting China, because um, the, uh, China had been overwhelmed by uh, two different nomad races before the Mongols, and the Mongols turned up, cleared them out, killed them all off, or incorporated them into their realm, and then kept on rolling south, and actually united China for the first time in several hundred years, um, thereby keeping it together. Um, and so... Uh, that's one thing that he achieved. The other thing is that by being in charge of uh, the Mongol Empire at a time when it was at its greatest extent, he also presided over an area of incredible cultural exchange because you've got Arabs and Uyghurs and Hungarians and, 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 and indeed one famous Italian you know, and Chinese and, and, and Koreans all being able to travel this vast distance, which was, which was never possible again on land for, for hundreds of years, because you know, once, once the Mongol uh, Empire fell, Central Asia became predominantly Muslim. You had to sail all the way around Africa to get there. So basically, it was kind of this last, this last gasp of massive cultural exchange, um, bringing all kinds of knowledge uh, and technology in both directions uh, and you know, creating other transformations of their own in, in food and in art and, and in you know, porcelain and stuff like that. So you mention a certain Italian mm. without wanting to kind of spoil the surprise. Mm. How do we know about Kublai Khan? Is, is said unnamed Italian the, the reason why? Well, he's, uh, I mean, Marco Polo um, was, um, uh, met, met Kublai in person. The, 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 the Polo brothers were merchants in Asia and they, they, um, uh, and they came home um, to Italy, but basically, the Mongols were very keen on on, on sweeping up uh, contending religions. They uh, Kublai in particular loved having Taoists and Buddhists and Jews and Muslims arguing about stuff in his court. And the Taoists were particularly popular because they could do magic tricks, and he kind of liked that. That was kind of fun. Um, and he said to the Polo brothers, uh, Maffeo and, uh, and and Niccolo, you know, could you go back to Europe and bring me a hundred of the best Christian minds and some some holy oil from the sepulchre of, in Jerusalem. And then we can, you know, we, you can get involved in all our big, you know, magic trick parties where we debate religions and stuff. And the Polo brothers uh, went back home to Europe and kind of came back with like three monks and a bottle of oil. But the monks deserted them somewhere in, in, uh, uh, on the way. So by the time they got back to Shangdu, where Kublai was, all they had was a bottle of oil and this kid, Marco, who is uh, uh, one, of, one of their sons. So they kind of went, oh, well, here's the oil. And uh, yeah, Marco's picked up a bit of Chinese, actually. Yeah, check this out. And 
Kublai kind of made Marco Polo one of his um, one of his minions. And in fact, he probably made all the brothers one of their minions, but we only have Marco's word for it. And of course, Marco eventually came home to Europe and wrote up his travels um, in the description of the world. Uh, and um, so that is a huge resource on Kublai Khan. And, and in fact, um, Marco had this reputation as being a complete bullshit artist. But actually, many of the things that he said were completely true, uh, but just Europeans just wouldn't believe him. Um, so Marco is a huge source um, for Kublai's reign and for Kublai's realm, although often it was doubtful. We also have a man, called, uh, a contemporary of Marco Polo called Rashid al-Din, who was a, a chronicler in Persia, who also wrote about the history of, of the Mongol Khans. And many of his stories match Marco's exactly. So when we, you know, it, it, they helped confirm it. So we have Rashid al-Din's uh, uh, Jamash al-Tarorik, um, and we have the description of the world by Marco Polo. And we also have the Chinese chronicles. I mean, the Mongols, as a Chinese dynasty, got the UN Shur, got the history of the UN, which chronicled all of their deeds and misdeeds as well. So we have very, very... Uh, strong sources for this period. Um, and Marco Polo wasn't the only European to report on the Mongol realm. You know, we have John of Plano Carpini and we have William of Rubruck and we have several other uh, missionaries who, who, who wrote up what they saw. So there's a very solid basis of material um, that we can work on, which helps us kind of fill in the gaps. I love this. Um, how high ranking was he? I'd write in my head, he ends up being massively instrumental in Kublai's government. Is that total rubbish? Well, we're not totally sure um, about Marco. I mean, we know that uh, Kublai's empire, the Mongols in general, really relied very heavily on foreign minions because it was an occupation regime and they didn't trust the, they didn't trust the Chinese at all. So in, in terms of Mongol society, the Mongols were at the top. Then there were the what's known as the miscellaneous aliens, the Sermuren, which is the foreigners who work for them, Uyghurs, Persians, Tibetans, anyone who'd been conquered in the generation before. And Marco Polo was one of those people. And then below them are the North Chinese who were conquered in the early 13th century. And below them are the South Chinese who nobody trusts at all because they were conquered last. And so we know that Marco Polo was one of these Sermu men. Um, and, he, and there are parts within Marco Polo's narrative where it really comes alive, where it seems that instead of telling you something he's kind of heard, he's telling you something he's seen. And so, and we can tell by those moments, the narrative that he certainly traveled to several places within Kublai's realm, probably as some kind of corporate troubleshooter uh, in the occupation regime. Um, there is a claim made by some people, including Marco, some editions of Marco Polo, that he was the governor of Yangzhou, a Chinese city um, on the Grand Canal. Now, the problem with this is, is that when you look at it in Italian, in the, the, the earliest extant Italian manuscript that we have, Marco says, yeah, I was in Yangzhou. I had a sojourner there. I had a, I had a sojourn there. I lived there for a bit. In the French, the earliest French version, that same sentence is, I had a seigneury there. I, I, I was the lord of that place. Um, and we don't have the original manuscript to know which one of those is a copying error. So... Um, it may well have been uh, that Marco, uh, that some versions of Marco Polo accidentally beak him up in a way that wasn't necessarily required. Um, I would say he was certainly a middle ranking, middle management kind of guy uh, in Kublai's realm. Um, I don't think that he was the despot of a particular region. I don't think he necessarily ran a city, but he certainly had quite a high ranking operational 
uh, role. Um, and, and we can tell that from the kind of things that he really seems to know very well. So going back to Kublai for a sec then, one of the things that we've sort of discussed while we were prepping this is the, the Japanese and kind of how they made his life difficult. Tell us about that. Well, um, so the Mongol Empire is constantly expanding and its reputation is one of utterly terrifying atrocities upon atrocities and people just collapse before it. Um, if you know what's good for you and the Mongols turn up, you immediately surrender. And if you're a local lord, they'll probably make you a local Mongol lord and they'll keep on going. As long as they're getting your tax, they don't really care. If you resist, they will kill every living thing in your city. They will completely destroy uh, your city. And in fact, that's what they did to Beijing. Um, when Beijing fell in, I think, 1215, uh, they killed everybody inside and, and uh, they burned the city down. And, uh, and there was so much death that the streets ran with human fat uh, because of, the, you know, there was, there was a, a, a wash with it. Um, and so, uh, and, and Kublai himself would capitalize on the atrocious reputation of his forebears as his men went south uh, to conquer southern China. Uh, part of their kind of modus operandi was to turn up in a town and go, you know who his granddad is, right? So we're the same, with, you know, nothing much has changed. You know, nice city, be a shame if something happened to it. Yeah. Um, and that was often enough um, to, to make these people capitulate. Um, but uh, Korea was one of the first places, accidentally, really, quite by accident, Korea was one of the first places to acknowledge Kublai's authority as the emperor of China. Um, there was a, a local dispute. Um, Kublai sent some Mongol troops to intervene. A very grateful Prince Wonjong said, well, while we're at it, I'm, I guess I'll acknowledge you as emperor. And by doing that, wiped out hundreds of years of Korean resistance to the Chinese. And so Kublai was always really proud of this in a very Donald Trumpy sort of way. He'd always bring up, of course, uh, no other emperor before me could uh, deal with Korea. But, you know, they came to me. They just fucking turned up and done. Easy. Um, unfortunately, I mean, I may be paraphrasing. Um, you know, it, it doesn't really, it's not the same in the original Mongol. Um, but when he conquered Korea, immediately uh, a Korean interpreter in his court said, you do realize there are some islands beyond Korea. Mm. A place called Japan. Um, and every now and then they do send tribute to the Chinese emperor. So you should probably send someone over there to tell them that you are the, you know, you're the emperor now, and they'll send you some, I don't know, lucky gonks or you know, whatever it is the Japanese send as tribute. Um, so uh so Kublai goes, okay, cool, but we, we'll send someone to Japan. Um, and so he sends these envoys to Korea. And of course, the last thing the Koreans want is for this to happen. Because they've dealt with the Japanese before, they know they're nutcases, and they know if the Japanese resist, there will be a military expedition. And if there's a military expedition, it is going to come from Korea. It's going to be the Koreans' problem. They're going to have to organize it. They're going to have to build the ships. They're going to have to get the manpower together. It's going to destroy the Korean economy on a war footing for decades. So the Koreans go, oh, Japan, long way. Don't know if you really want to go there. And, and Kublai said, no, we, we, we are going to Japan. We're sending someone to Japan. And we actually have Kublai's correspondence, which is that blunt. He actually ends up haranguing Prince Wonjong and saying, listen, I'm the emperor. I'm telling you to go to fucking Japan. Go to fucking Japan. So, <laughs> so, so the Koreans get on this ship and they go to Tsushima, which is halfway to Japan. And they go, oh, that's a long way. <sighs> Better go home. And they actually turn around and come back and they go, well, we, we've been there. It's nowhere near as good as it looks. I, I think Tsushima is rubbish and I bet the rest of Japan is rubbish. And, and, and this goes on for years. This goes on for absolutely years. And eventually, after much prodding, 
the uh, the the ambassadors show up in Japan, um, and they want to talk to the emperor. But the emperor's not really in charge in Japan because he's got the shogun. The shogun's in charge, but the shogun's not really in charge in Japan because he's just like a figurehead at this point. It's the shogun's regent who's in charge, and the Japanese keep passing the buck all the way down until it ends up in the hands of a seventeen-year-old boy called Hojo Tokimune, who obviously you want to make big decisions about political events and invading Mongols. He tells them all to piss off. Um, he refuses uh, to deal with them. Uh, at one point, he even, I think, executes the, the Mongol emissaries, which is the absolute thing you must not do. The, the thing that really pisses a Mongol off is executing his ambassadors. Um, and the Japanese are like, we're ready, come on, bring it. We, we, don't, we don't care. Um, and so the Mongols have to prepare this massive invasion fleet in 1274 from Korea to sail to Japan. Um, and there's only one place they can land in Japan, which is Hakata Bay, which is the most, the largest bay in South Japan. It's where any invasion fleet needs to amass. Even in World War II, when there were plans for Operation Downfall to invade Japan, Hakata Bay was the landing point because there was nowhere else you could get that many ships. So the Mongols send this huge fleet over to um, Japan. And the Japanese, they've built a fortification all the way along the, 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 the edge of the harbour. The samurai are all there waiting for them. The samurai haven't had a war to fight for years and years, so they are really up for it. And there's this very long, you know, prolonged battle on the shoreline. And then, very famously, one night, uh, when the, the, you know, the Japanese are hanging on and the Mongols haven't quite broken through, but you know, at some point, the overwhelming Mongol numbers are going to overwhelm this, these coastal fortifications. There is a massive typhoon which destroys the Mongol fleet, just smashes it together where it is in the harbour, absolutely wrecks it, kill, uh, kills most of the people in the fleet, and uh, it saves the Japanese. And the Japanese are busy celebrating, uh, and not just the samurai, the Buddhist priests in Japan are celebrating as well. And the Buddhist priests are saying, well, we ob obviously thoughts and prayers, we prayed for that storm. So we should take some of the credit for that storm. It was a divine wind. It was a kamikaze. And so ever since then, Japan has always relied on some kind of, you know, momentous stroke of luck to save it in times of war, as indeed it did in 1281 when Kublai sent another fleet, which was also destroyed by another typhoon. So the Japanese uh, developed this idea that they were in, invulnerable, that, you know, the, the gods were protecting them against the Mongols. Um, and this was a huge embarrassment for the Mongols. Um, and in fact, Kublai was going to send a third invasion fleet to deal with Japan, but never got round to it. The Koreans uh, and his own ministers gently, you know, pushed that to one side. You know, we'll put Japan on the back burner for a bit. We've got to deal with some other things in the empire. So maybe not now this. Um, and so they, there was never a third invasion fleet. Um, uh, but the Japanese you know, resistance marked the high point uh, of the Mongol Empire. And after that point, it started to recede because the Japanese had put up such a fight. And, and Marco Polo was a commissioner in, uh, uh, in Yangzhou on the second invasion fleet. He was there supervising the second invasion fleet. And his comments in his book confirm what marine archaeologists have confirmed, um, examining the fragments of shattered driftwood that are still left at the bottom of Hakata Bay, which is that the Mongols, not being a race known for their naval prowess, had basically sent a bunch of riverboats They'd sent, uh, they, you know, requisitioned every ship they could find on the Yangtze um, and sent them as part of this invasion fleet. And the, 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 one of the amazing things about the, the, the driftwood that they found is there are multiple nail holes in it, 
like someone was bodging it together and they got it wrong, you know, like your dad doing DIY and they put another nail in and that didn't quite fit. They've been really bodged together. They're old boats. They don't have keels that are sufficient for um, traveling across 120 kilometers of open sea. The fleet was doomed before it even set out. And, you know, any bad weather would have ruined it. Um, so that is why uh, the Japanese um, did so much damage to the Mongols. Um, and if Kublai had, had lived another 10 years, he would have probably pushed for another attack on Japan. But he was already quite old by this point. Um, and uh, he had other things on his mind by that point. So the, the final, um, the, the big push to get Japan never actually happened. And although throughout the Mongol um, dynasty, there was an office in Korea that was supposed to be in charge of doing another attack on the Japanese, but they conveniently never got around to it. I love it. I just, is this where, it, but it did give Clive Cussler material. Is that all the, that's the fleet that everyone talks about? What's the treasure deal with that? Uh, the tr I don't know. No, the I don't know my Clive Custer, I'm afraid. Uh, okay, no worries. <laughs> I just wondered if it was true. I'll cut that. <clears throat> Are the Japanese the only ones to try and stand up to him? No, funnily enough, uh, when you read the Mongol accounts and when you when you read the kind of the, the overwriting, the overriding kind of grand history, it seems the Mongols were successful, 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 turned on each other, things slowly fell apart. But actually, there were many resistances to the Mongols. Um, uh, what we now call Vietnam uh, or North Vietnam, a, a state of Annam, um, Kublai was actually supposedly supervising an attack on that when he was quite a young man and supposedly Annam surrendered, but they never really did. They gave the Mongols a runaround for the rest of Kublai's life. Throughout his life, uh, we get these comments of, well, you know, Annam's up in arms again. Oh, they, you know, we told them to send us tribute and they haven't. We'd better send a guy to deal with it. But because there's this tyranny of distance when it comes to communications, it can take weeks to send a message to Anam saying, have you sent that thing? And for them to send a message back going, pardon? And for you to send a message back going, no, really, have you sent that thing? And, and so the, the, the lines of communication, the length of communication with the Vietnamese allowed the Vietnamese to just run rings around the Mongols for years and years and years. Um, they, the emperor would surrender and then the emperor would retire. So the, the, the ruler of Vietnam, I should say, not, uh, would surrender and then he would retire. So by the time the Mongol envoy came back to say, so about this surrender, we've agreed. He go, oh, that was my dad. Oh, we, uh, could you clarify what we're supposed to do again? And this, and this went on for years and years and years. And every now and then the Vietnamese would actually rise up in actual revolt, uh, particularly a very, a very famous revolt where um, to show how um, you know, noble they were and their desire to resist the Mongols, they all had death to the Mongols tattooed on them, um, which meant it's quite easy to find out who was in the Vietnamese army at that point, because you know, anyone wearing a death to the Mongols tattoo would obviously be uh, top of the list. Eventually, the Mongols um, did succeed in Annam and eventually and tried to push south into Champa. Um, they ran into trouble in Burma. Uh, there was uh, a ruler of Burma called Narathi Hapate, who was an absolute nutter. Uh, he claimed to be the leader of 36 million soldiers, uh, which was a slight <laughs> overestimation of how big, well, Burma was. And he also claimed to eat 300 curries a day, um, which must have, you know, so you can imagine what he was like, or maybe you can't. But anyway, so he stood up to the, to the Mongols for a bit and then um, and, it, and they eventually found uh, one of his. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history. 
We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. You know, relatives to, to accept the Mongol suzerainty and thereby become the ruler of Burma. And then, you know, right at the end of Marco Polo's uh, sojourn in China, uh, Marco Polo uh, actually sailed home via Persia. And, and on the way, they stopped off in Java because the Javanese were fighting back. Um, uh, a king called Kurta Nagara was um, uh, resisting the Mongols. Um, so there was, uh, there was a heavy resistance to the Mongols, and it got tougher and tougher the further away things went. Um, and and so, uh, so, yeah, there eventually came a point when you kind of reached the sort of high watermark. And the high watermark was really Japan. But the thing about Japan and, and ARM is that those two stories I've told you both happen basically concurrently. So every time resources were diverted to one, it would make it harder to attack the other. And so ARM and Japan inadvertently uh, kind of balanced each other and helped each other out by presenting resistance in different places. And we know the Japanese story because the Japanese themselves are so proud of it and will not stop talking about it. The <laughs> Vietnamese story is less well known. And one of the things that I did for my book very deliberately um, is, uh, and I'm oddly proud of myself for this, because I thought to myself, if there were a book about the history of Vietnam, what would its Dewey Decimal number be in the SOAS library? And I worked out what the Dewey Decimal number would be for a French language history of Vietnam, and then went to that place in the library, and there it was. It wasn't actually in the catalogue, <laughs> but it was, it was there. Um, so I did, uh, I wrote an entire chapter concentrating entirely on the Vietnamese resistance because, because we tell the story of Kublai chronologically. He did this, then he did that, then he did that. The idea that there will be a, a resistance movement that ebbed and flowed but went on for 40 or 50 years throughout his life uh, is, not, is not something that's easy to kind of pass in narrative terms. So I, I put it all into one chapter so you could actually see how the Vietnamese resistance worked. And they were in many ways as successful as the Japanese in holding the Mongols off. Not quite as successful as the Japanese, but quite, you know, for a long time they were. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Just how big does this empire get? Because, I mean, we're talking Java, we're talking Vietnam, Korea, Japan. And then, I mean, Genghis Khan, he's sort of knocking on the door of Hungary. Yes. So, the, I mean, the, the, the Mongol realm, as we know it, stretched from Hungary to Korea. Um, it's very much land based. Any attempt that the Mongols made to deal with marine expansion, like Japan, like Java, often ran into troubles. A lot like the Chinese emperors, um, it's 
difficult to talk about a precise border that's drawn with a wall. What you actually get is, is, what, is what some scholars have called a mandala effect, where right in the center, he's the emperor. And then out at the edge, there are people who don't really know who he is, and they're barbarians, but you might be able to bring them into your field. And then beyond them are the savages who've never even heard of him. And so uh, what you get with, uh, with the Mongol realm, however, is um, because it's so large, it kind of breaks up like a big tectonic plate. And so Kublai maintains and his descendants main, maintain control in China for 100 years. And then you have the Mughal emperors in, in, you know, in India, Persia, the Ilkhans in Persia, who kind of break away into their own little areas. The, um, the Ilkhans in particular were, were very successful because by converting to Islam, they stopped drinking. And, and booze was one of the things that really destroyed so much of the Mongol aristocracy. And I can talk about that more later if you like. Similarly, you've got the Golden Horde in the very far west who, uh, who were um, you know, taking uh, tribute from the princes of Muscovy um, and down on the edge of the Caspian Sea. So you, you've got areas of the Mongol realm that kind of hang on and, and some of them hang on for a very long time. But the idea of there being one single great Khan to, which, to whom they all pay homage, that is already fading in the 14th century. Um, and of course, ultimately, the Chinese uh, stage a, this is long after Kublai's death, but ultimately the Chinese stage a, a revolt. There's this terrible collapse uh, of, of state power in, uh, in the 14th century. Uh, and by 1368, the Chinese have chased the Mongols out of China. And the Yuan dynasty, as it defined itself, continued for centuries afterwards in Mongolia. But China was for the Chinese once more. And you know, the Ming dynasty was very proud of itself for being China ruled by the Chinese once more. Um, and, uh, and as a corollary to that, it's something else worth bearing in mind, which has only really become obvious, uh, only really become apparent, I should say, to modern scholars. And that's the role that climate plays in all of this. Um, because uh, it is now possible to map the rise and fall of Chinese dynasties onto uh, changes in climate. And they often match precisely. You can see when the dynasty is on the rise. You can see when it's going to fall down. And it's mapped to weather, to mini ice ages, to, to, you know, to, to various pestilences and, and plagues caused by, in themselves by floods, caused themselves by bad weather. And uh, the, the, uh, the historian Timothy Brook has uh, argued that between the Yuan dynasty and the end of the Ming dynasty, so for the period from the early 13th century to the late to the mid 17th century china in particular suffered nine absolutely cataclysmic climate disasters which he calls the nine sloughs and those uh, map to the rise of the mongols to the fall of the mongols to the to the, to the rebellions that broke out uh, and to the rise of the ming dynasty and ultimately to the fall of the ming dynasty as well and he calls these the nine sloughs uh, as in the city of Slough, which I'm sure would love to be associated with, uh, <laughs> with, with climate change and pestilence. Um, so the nine Sloughs... Not far off, to be fair. Not I far off, let's face it. Let's face it. earlier this yeah. week, and it wasn't great. So sorry, people of Slough. Um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, I mean, there, there, you can see all of these climate fluctuations throughout Chinese history. And some of the in most interesting areas of Chinese history today are seeing how our dynasty copes but many, in many cases, that weather change is the one that pushes them over the edge. And that's certainly the case in both the rise and the fall of the Mongols. So, Zach asked you about how big the empire got. We mentioned in the intro um, 
how big Kublai Khan got. What's he look like? So he's a mass- massive, larger than life character. Is that right? Very much so. Marco Polo described him as shapely. <laughs> um, and there's been much debate among Polo scholars as to whether that meant, uh, you know, of pleasing appearance or curve. Henry VIII. Henry VIII. Yeah. Um, the fact is, is that uh, we have uh, paintings of uh, Kublai in his relatively late years by a court artist called Lu Guandao, where he's clearly a massively obese man. Mm. Um, and the and uh, there's a very there's a statue of him uh, in Beijing on the on the Mongol Wall, um, which is now a park in Beijing, and he's so fat that he's actually leaning on he, he's kind of bolstering himself up with one of his arms, leaning on his own thigh because he can't hold himself up. Mm. And and this doesn't seem to be <clears throat> this doesn't seem to be an unusual uh, or controversial thing to suggest because we have the records of the Yuan Dynasty, and we know for a fact that. One of the first tributes that the UN dynasty demanded from King Wonjong in Korea was shark skin. Um, and, and Kublai needed shark skin to make soft slippers because his feet were so swollen with gout. Oh, okay. Um, and so, like many of the, uh, the later generation Mongol princes, as Temujin had predicted, they lived a very good life. They had fantastic food as much as they wanted. They discovered sherbet, which is basically pure sugar. And, and they were drinking huge amounts. Um, and in fact, one, this is one of the fascinating issues with the Mongols, which I think came up when we were talking about Chinese food as well, mm. which is that um, the Mongols' tipple of choice was fermented horse's milk called irag or, or kumis. Okay. And that's, that's basically a slightly fizzy yogurt, and it's about 2% al- alcohol by volume. So it's like shandy. And you have to quaff absolutely massive amounts of it before you get squiffy. And then the Mongols turn up in China and uh, there's Chinese wine, which is three times as strong. But also um, from the Arabs, they've got this thing that they use to make makeup and perfume, which uh, is coal, as, as we call it, you know, the yeah. eye makeup. Uh, and, the, and, and so the Arabs say, yeah, we, we use this still to make something we call alcohol. Um, and that's pure grain alcohol. And in the Muslim world, that's no trouble. They use it to make perfume. It gets to China and someone goes, we could drink this. <laughs> and so you get uh, what is possibly, uh, the Chinese have probably discovered and then forgotten how to make grain alcohol several times in their history. But yeah. this is when you get baijiu. This is when you get fire water in China, which is up to 70% alcohol by volume. And the Mongols are still drinking it like it's shandy. Oh dear, yeah, that's the so penalty, is it? Repeatedly, um, f- from the times of the sons of Temujin right down to uh, Kublai's own grandson, repeatedly you get these men killing themselves by alcohol poisoning. Uh, Kublai's own grandson died of alcohol abuse, um, and the stories about him and how they tried to get him off it, and how he had these enablers, and how he tried to sneak booze in. It's a very kind of modern tale of alcoholism. But so, you have to say that the, the more you tell me about the Mongols with their, you know, their pillaging and their bad behaviour and their boozing and that, it just sounds like Croydon. <laughs> I'm not going there, not saying anything. <laughs> it's like central Croydon. Well, I think there is a certain uh, exuberance that you get with a race that ha- a race of people or an ethnic group that has nothing that suddenly has everything. Yeah, because there's no uh, one to tell him stop eating. There's, there's no one to tell them. Don't need all that food. <laughs> uh, and and it, it goes with fashions as well. Uh, there's yeah. a Mongol fashion called nasij, um, 
which is uh, you get a Chinese jacket and it's like, like a leather jacket and it has a silk lining. Some Mongol put it on back to front. He, he put it on inside out so that the silk was on the outside and the leather was on the inside. Nobody dared tell him that he was wearing it like a dick. And so this became the new fashion for all the Mongols. Um, and so, uh, yes, you, you, you do get the sense of, a, of an incredibly powerful, very privileged elite who no one is telling to stop. No one dares tell to stop. Yeah. Uh, and then that does take its toll over time uh, on, their, on their physical health. actually saw in Copenhagen um, a Mongol tunic from about this time. This book, I've mentioned it on another podcast we recorded this week. There was a, a basically a mad Danish guy who went around collecting early Islamic art and stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, he had some, it, his collection starts from about the year 600. And it's in um, his house in Copenhagen and it's free to go and look at. It's the David collection. And he mm-hmm. had some Mongol stuff in there as well. And one of those, like a, 30, a 12th, 13th century tunic. And is it silk? It is. It is because the thing is with the Mongols is that they they weren't that keen on silk originally because Temujin had told them real men wear leather leather pants. It's definitely not leather, but it's definitely like highly intricately decorated with like expensive threads and stuff. Oh, because the Mongols originally liked silk because it was lice proof. Lice can't live in silk, so um, it's you know a, a great thing to have as your undershirt. And then they discovered that you could also catch arrows on it. That you know it, it would. Uh, um, uh, particularly if you had silk padding it would actually serve as a quite handy form of armor so they got very excited about silk and this caused all kinds of arguments among the mongols because you're not supposed to like this soft stuff that's what farmers make and sell to the the poshos in beijing you can't you know you can't be a real manly man and wear silk so you get lots of arguments among the mongols about that sort of thing as well which is again this conservative versus progressive split between them so we've been talking about Marco all the way mm. through this. Yes. And one of the things that you mentioned is that he goes back to Italy in, in the end um, to then write up his, his experiences. And that becomes, you know, that main source that you, you preferred to. So you're talking about how he has a position in government. Does he basically just do a runner? Is this sort of, what is it with me in this question about Marco? <laughs> I know, you can you're ask it. I probably, you're I'm, obsessed. You know what? Do you know all right, Zach? I'll ask about religion now. I'll do one all-round <laughs> question, and then you can ask the question. All right. Otherwise, I'm going to sit here. And, we should leave this in. I'll sit here and sulk. All right. Okay. <laughs> Hold fire. Before we get to Zach's question about Marco Polo, which he's obsessed. Yeah. Uh, what religion was he? Um, why did he turn on Muslims? And was he ever tempted to become a Christian? Uh, well, he never openly declared what religion he was. He liked to keep everybody guessing. And that kept a lot of the relig- a lot of the missionaries uh, in his court uh, busily competing for him. I mean, you know, they knew his mother was an Nestorian Christian. They knew that his father was uh, what we would probably call a, a Buddhist to some description, but you never know with the Mongols. Um, so he got all of these competing uh, religions at his court, desperately trying, you know, working on the assumption that if they can just get him to say he loves Jesus, China goes Christian, for example um so uh but he and possibly because of that he never proclaimed his religion one way or the other 
looking at the material evidence, like where he decided to build temples, including this fantastic white pagoda that's still there in Beijing next to the Forbidden City, it seems clear to me that Kublai's leanings were, were basically Buddhist, but he mm. never openly proclaimed that. Are they um, particularly religious in general, the Mongols? Doesn't seem like they would be. Uh, well, it's very difficult with a culture like that to separate religion from tradition, from custom. So they had many beliefs. Uh, and you know they, there were some some gods that they prayed to, and and they were very much under the assumption that those gods had let them rule the world. So therefore, they kept praying to them. So you get this kind of this kind of sympathetic magic almost that reinforces it. But nor did the Mongols wish to uh, annoy any other religion. And so Nayan, who was a, a Mongol who uh, a, a Christian Mongol who rose up in revolt against Kublai, he actually had a crucifix that he carried ahead of his army because he thought that, like Constantine the Great, that God would, you know, in this sign you will conquer. And then Kublai kicked the shit out of him. And then all of the people at the court were going, "Well, so obviously Christianity is bullshit. Then we should wipe, we should cut that one out." And then somebody else said, "No, no." Christian God didn't support Nyan because Christian God supports Kublai, therefore Christianity is working, see? In this sign, Kublai. <laughs> so there's a lot of that going on. Um, but also what you're dealing with in Kublai's empire is you've got this melting pot of cultures and the, and the local officers are often Muslims from Central Asia or, to, or Tibetans. And so you have this clash of religions uh, at a kind of managerial level in Kublai's um, realm. Um, and I'll give you one example of that, which is that he had this Tibetan guy uh, who was in charge of temple restoration in Hangzhou. And he showed up and he was like, oh, this temple here, during the uh, the Song dynasty, it was you know, converted into a, like a barn or something. But actually, it should have been a Buddhist temple. It's a Buddhist temple. We're going we're gonna to spend some public money, sort that out. And you hear that story. You think, oh, that's nice. That's really cool. Unfortunately, um, this it kind of backfired because you've got this Tibetan walking around going, that Taoist temple used to be a Buddhist temple. It's a Buddhist temple again. Kick the Taoists out. And then... Um, there was uh, the graves of the Song emperors. He turned up and he went, this is supposed to be a Buddhist temple. Knock that shit down. Get those bodies out. Set fire, chuck them on the rubbish pile. So they're, they're, they're literally getting one of the Song emperors. They're ripping the head off his corpse and they're throwing it in a pile of trash. And the locals are saying, what is this guy doing? And in fact, what's happening is, is that firstly, that really was a Buddhist temple and he was restoring it to its natural state. But secondly, as a Tibetan Buddhist, he didn't believe in the sanctity of the body. Uh, he doesn't want your body. When, when Tibetan Buddhists die of his particular sect, they don't you know, go in the ground and fill their bodies with worms. They don't set fire to themselves. They leave them out on the mountaintop for the vultures to eat. And so for him, it was just a perfectly reasonable managerial decision to get this dead emperor and chuck him on a rubbish heap. But actually, of course, the Chinese were incredibly insulted by this and thought that it was all kicking off. Um, similarly, um, the big issue with Kublai uh, in the 1280s was the conflict that he had with the Muslims, which kicked off in an absolutely astounding way um, at a dinner party. Um, because <laughs> where else, if you're a, de a delegation from just uh, west of uh, Lake Baikal showed up and they gave him some big falcons. He's like, "Oh yeah, nice falcons, thanks for that." And 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 there's this huge kind of dining hall. And Marco Polo paints these amazing pictures of of what it was like with people, you know, being sick and you know stripping naked and streaking through the hall and you know throwing stuff at each other. It must have been quite a righteous thing with Kublai presiding over it at one end on his big dais. And then because he likes these falcons so much, he's trying to impress the guys from Baikal. 
he sends them some meat from his table and they go oh no thanks and he, and and the and the servants go no you should definitely take this because it's like a gift from the emperor and he's he's looking at us now please take this and they're like no no uh full actually and go what's wrong go, this is not halal we will not eat this it is not halal and kublai says what is this halal thing and they go oh well we haven't mentioned this before but it turns out that when uh um when people of the book when the jews and the muslims kill uh, uh, meat, uh, kill their uh, meat animals, uh, they slit their throats and bleed them out. And Kublai just goes absolutely ballistic because Mongols still have this kind of your granny austerity regime thing where you don't waste any part of an animal. Mm. When you kill an animal, you slice open its side, you reach in and you, gri- you grip its heart so its heart stops beating and then the blood stays in the body and you eat everything. And so Kublai discovers that the, the Muslims are slashing the throats of creatures and letting them bleed out. Uh, and the interpreter who's present is a man called Jesus the Christian, which is a bit of a hint, doesn't like the Muslims very much, and says to Kublai, oh, yeah, they do this all the time. Yeah, they probably hate you. Actually, they've got a book called the Quran, which basically says that you, they're going to kill you. Um, and he goes, really? And, and, and so, and so they, they dig up the Quran, which does have quite a controversial passage in it about how to treat idolaters, how to treat people who worship more than one God. And Jesus, the Christian, goes, yeah, so by not proclaiming for any one religion, you are basically being that guy in the Quran that they say it's OK for the Muslims to kill. Um, and then things just get worse because they bring this imam in and, and they say to him, is this true, this bit in the Quran? And unwisely, he goes, oh, yeah. Yeah, it is. We just haven't done it yet. And then they go, oh, quick, get another imam. So they, they, get, they drag another imam in and they go, is this bit true? And he goes, no, no, it's, it's been taken out of context. And he shows them another bit of the Quran that says, be nice to everybody. And it all calms down a bit. Nevertheless, Kublai is incensed by this, this halal issue. And so he actually makes it a capital offense to kill an animal in the halal fashion. Um, and not only that, he offers rewards to people who inform on those who do. So those who are hoping this would become like a don't ask, don't tell thing where we just won't talk about halal food for a couple of years. It turns into this huge conspiracy where everyone's servant and everyone's neighbor is all shopping the Muslims uh, to, uh, to the authorities. And this causes huge ructions, mainly it, it ultimately with the Muslims leaving China. The, the, and, and that shuts down their trade. This is like a little mini Brexit all on its own because the Muslim traders are the people on the Silk Road who bring all the stuff in. And so suddenly, the number of Muslims in the empire in the 1280s just drops through the floor, and they're not paying tax, and they're not arriving in the south on ships. And that means that you know the, the, the trade is being affected. And ultimately, these rules are, are slowly relaxed, and they kind of back away from it. But there was this very brief period where um, as a result of the, the standoff between the Christians and the Muslims at, uh, at Kublai's court, um, this, uh, this really was quite a, a dangerous time. And Rashid al-Din writes about it in, in his chronicle, and Marco Polo writes about it as well, because he, he talks about the accursed doctrines of the Saracens. And, and how, you know, they've finally been found out and how fantastic this is. And of course, Rashid al-Din uh, on, the other, on the other end of Asia is going, no, you know, we're completely innocent in all this. This whole thing has been drummed up by the Christians. And, you know, luckily, you know, justice uh, won through in the end. But it was a very tense time. <laughs> Go on, Zach. Zach. And I now ask my Mo- Marco Polo question. <laughs> do it. Do no, it. we're out of time. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening, for everyone. <laughs> yeah.
I didn't even know this was going to be like an obsession over the course of this one. But you mentioned earlier on about Marco Polo ends up back in Italy, where he he writes um, what now becomes a, a major source um, based on Kublai Khan, based on his travels, right? But he's also in a position in government, even if it's not kind of a senior position, he's out there doing stuff for Kublai. So does he basically kind of do the equivalent of running from the mafia and just manages to get away? What Does he just kind of ditch Kublai? I think so, yes. Um, it's not how it's presented in the works of Marco Polo himself. Um, but uh, let's look at it. Let's look at the, the basic facts. You, he shows up as a young man in China, he becomes a made man with this, if you like, this mafia elite who are plundering China. He gets to enjoy all the fun stuff um, for 24, 23, 24 years. You know, he's getting towards middle age now. Um, and he's an agent in an occupying regime. We don't think Marco Polo ever learned Chinese. All of his accounts use Persian words for the things that he talks about. So, you know, he's talking in Persian with these people. He never really gets to know the Chinese. There are huge omissions in Marco Polo's work, which some people have used as reasons to, to doubt he ever went to China. But the omissions are exactly the kind of thing that you would not notice if you were an agent of an occupying regime. So he never sees the Great Wall. He never really meets any Chinese women apart from the hookers in, in, in the Hangzhou brothels. Um, and he complains about that all the time. Um, and uh, he never he never talks about tea. Tea's not a thing that he really encounters because tea's drunk by the Chinese and he's not among them. So I think he's very much uh, a kind of traveling troubleshooter, but he's, I don't think he's ever at home. Uh, there's always a question, was there a Mrs. Marco? Did he kind of find some kind of wife? There's no mention of a wife. Um, and so there is talk in the description of the world. That he asks for permission to go home. And I suspect it may not have been Marco himself. It may have been his dad. Because, you know, Marco is you know, pushing 40. That means his dad is heading for 60. At some point, the Polo family want to go home. I don't think we could reasonably suggest they have made an actual home for themselves in China. And that ultimately, uh, certainly his, his dad, uncle, uh, but possibly Marco himself, wanted to go home, wanted to cash in uh, the money that they'd made and go back to Europe. Um, I mean, it, for, for me, it, it's, it's weird because, you know, I, I throw myself into China and Chinese culture feet first. I don't sit there missing Burger King when I'm in China. Mm -hmm. um, but I think with a lot of people who are kind of um, dispatched somewhere as envoys, they're living in hotels, you know, they're, they're, they're not becoming part of that culture and they are missing home they are getting homesick and so also i think it's worth bearing in mind that things are starting to fall apart kublai is an old man kublai's favorite wife dies his favorite son dies he's depressed he's secluded in the palace and his new wife who no one really likes is making uh uh decrees on his behalf it looks like things might be just about to go pear-shaped and if you need a reason to get out maybe all of these things come together and the reason presents itself in the form of princess kokachin because they're sending a bride to the ilkhanate in persia and they need someone to escort her and the polo's like we'll do it we'll do it cool <laughs> um and so the polo family leave china and what's never really specified is did they ever say they would go back 
Um, what actually happens is they they go to to Persia, they offload Princess Cockachin uh, on on not on the man she was supposed to marry, but on some other guy. And then once they're in Persia, in theory, they could turn around and head back towards China and get on with stuff. But they don't. They head north. They go to Trebizond, and then they get on a ship to um, to, to Venice. Um, and ironically, uh, the Polos travel completely unmolested all the way across Asia because as agents of the Khan, they have the, the power of the Khan behind them in the little you know gold plate that they can carry. So they are left completely safe for thousands of miles across China. The moment they're in Turkey, someone mugs them. Um, and <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't laugh, but that is really funny. And, they, and so they turn up back in Venice and they're actually mistaken for tramps when they get back to the Polo family home. Um, and it's only when they kind of change out of their clothes and shave and everything uh, that, it, okay, yes, it is, it is the polos. And then, of course, it turns out that their jewels, all of the money, all the wealth they've accumulated is sewn into the clothes they've worn on the way back, which is why the muggers didn't get it. And, they're like, and, and the servant's like, oh, we threw that stuff out. We, we didn't know. We, we thought that was all the old crap. So they have to go running out to the bins uh, to, to get their clothes back because they're full of jewels. Uh, but these jewels that they bring back from, from China are the foundation of Marco Polo's later life as a trader uh, in Venice uh, and what make him, you know, this kind of big, big wig uh, in the Venetian world. Let's do a death scene for Kubalai. How does it end? You've mentioned he's getting old, his favourite wife's died, his favourite son's died. He's very unhealthy. Let's not fat yeah. shame, but he's very fat, <laughs> he's very yeah. drunk. He's not looked after himself. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, he's how long, how old was he when he died? And, and what were the long-term effects of his reign and his dynasty? Okay, well, he, he was born in 1215. He died in 1294. So um, He does all right, considering he, he's like yeah. Churchill. He can somehow manages to get away with being rabidly unhealthy. Well, because he doesn't have to do a whole lot, does he, really? Um, you, you don't hear with Kublai, as you do with some emperors, about their really, you know, dynamic political life where they get up early in the morning and and do decrees and and sign off on stuff you don't get that with Kublai you get this sense that it was really kind of get up in the morning have a drink have another drink Netflix um, binge Netflix binge um we do have a poem that Kublai wrote apparently he did write some poems and there's one surviving poem of his which is quite smug and satisfied I think rightly so about what he's achieved in China He, he seems to enjoy the palace gardens and you know, he liked the view and he liked the food and it was okay. When his wife uh, and son died, he was, that's when it all shuts down for him. The last few years of his life. Um, so I think his, his wife died in 1281. Um, not without first getting her niece to be his new wife. I mean, she's like, oh, you know, I'm on my way out, but hey, I've got a present for you. Um, nevertheless, uh he, he really adored Charbi, his, his chief wife. And when she died and, and, and his son and heir predeceased him and uh, that son's son was a real dead loss and was, this, uh, was one of the alcoholic Mongols. And so he was very disappointed by that. Um, there isn't a deathbed scene for Kublai. There is an account in the UN dynasty history of how a comet appeared in the heavens and over the course of the year, drifted closer and closer to the purple enclosure, which is the symbol of the emperor. And basically, and basically a star is trespassing against heaven. Kublai is going to die, as indeed he did. Um, so, yeah, he had a reasonable lifespan, uh, certainly compared to many of the other Mongols. Um, and uh, unfortunately, you know, his, his descendants were already 
had already been raised as the children of privilege. And so you have to deal with um, the normal thing that happens in any dynasty when however dynamic the founder is, is their kids are uh, have had a different life experience and have different expectations. Um, and so what you then get over the next few decades is the Mongols arguing amongst themselves, the resurgence of this conservatism versus progressive um, argument. And uh, as time goes by, their hold on even on China starts to fade um, because there are disasters, because there's floods and there's famines. And eventually uh, there's a the Ming resistance springs up and, the, and they say, you know, even if the Mongols had the mandate of heaven, they've lost it. And so it's time for a change. And by 1368, the Mongols are chased out of Beijing and back onto the steppes. Um, and their, their empire is you know, drastically reduced once more um, to what it was 100 years earlier. As always, Jonathan, you've been phenomenal. Um, I can't, because I've like literally, it's not one of those history things that Chinese history just doesn't usually get me but every time you come on you manage to make it accessible and hilarious and really exciting so thank you for coming on and sharing this with us as well we know you'll be back at some stage because you've just got an endless list of amazing stories from Chinese history to tell us haven't you I have uh, there's we've already been discussing what the next one might be but you know I'll, I'll 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 take bids brilliant I'll take requests <laughs> When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.